So, Jay, you know what the problem with that webcomic Dr. McNinja is? That it's too good and beautiful for this fallen world? No! It's Dracula! Miles, I, I don't really understand what you're saying here. Are you suggesting that Dracula is... a problem? Miles, I, I, I don't understand. I mean, it's, it's Dracula. How is, how is Dracula ever a problem? It's Dracula. Well, it's mixing me up, man. I keep remembering plot points and not being able to place them with one or the other. Oh, oh, okay. I, I get that, and I can actually totally help here. Um, throw me some data, and I'll tell you whether it goes with Dr. McNinja's Dracula or the Marvel Universe Dracula. Okay. Try to seduce Storm. Marvel. Obviously. Look, it's it's been a long day. Okay, has numerous robot replicas of himself. McNinja. Marvel's Dracula knows better than to step on Doom's turf like that. Betrayed by his no-good son? Marvel. Kidnapped Bruce Lee. McNinja. Okay, I think I'm getting the feel for this. So the one who had a secret moon base, that's for McNinja, obviously. Well, yeah. Ha! But the Marvel one did, too. Oh, of course he did. At least until Pete Wisdom wiped out his vampire army during their invasion of Britain on a technicality. What kind of technicality stops a vampire invasion? They hadn't been invited in. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 207 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to the burning heat of summery death. It is like in the 90s on both of our cities right now, I believe. And neither of us can run air conditioning while we're recording because of the mics picking up. So yeah, we are slowly melting as, as you hear us. The sacrifices we make for audio fidelity. But speaking also of the fire and the flames... Oh, good segue. I was about to make a the things we do for love joke, and then it was going to turn into incest and pushing children out of off buildings, and it would have been much worse. But the point is, we're going to be at FlameCon. Yes, we are, and it's going to be great. Um, Jay has been talking this convention up to me for a long time, so I'm very excited. Yes, FlameCon is August 18th and 19th. It is in Manhattan, New York City, near Times Square. We will be tabling there. We will also be doing a live show. Come say hi. Come buy things. Come high-five us. Come tell us your conspiracy theories. And we can all talk about all of the stuff that is going to be announced between when we record this episode and when you listen to it at San Diego Comic-Con. I know so little, so little. I'm very excited to find out what's going on. I know several things, and there remain several mysteries, and I'm not going to talk about any of it except for the fact that, um, so the teaser image with Cyclops. Mm-hmm. Do you think wang beams are going to be an issue? I think wang beams have always been an issue. I think there are ruby quartz, condoms, and or cod pieces continually involved. Uh, it's something that Professor Xavier and Scott don't talk about very often because it was extremely awkward. Mr. Sinister didn't find it awkward, but Mr. Sinister is a total creep. I don't think Mr. Sinister actually finds anything awkward. For those of you who haven't seen this teaser image, um, it is Cyclops, but he's holding his visor at crotch level, and it's glinting like there are powers behind it. Mysterious. Oh my god, it never stops being relevant. Bringing it back. The greatest gift that Shirley Molodovsky has given the world. I mean, you know, my genetic existence I would like to think is part of it, but yeah, the mysterious line's probably better. I mean, 
that was sort of an indirect result of her. This came straight from her mouth and mind. (laughs) Straight from her heart. Anyway, my grandmother and how I used to draw crotches very much aside, we have got some comics to tell you about today. I mean, are those things ever really aside, especially when we're talking about cable? Valid, valid point, I suppose. Kind of those things aside, but on the other hand, we are talking about Cable, who who was introduced during the era of, of Liefeld's um, oddly broad, flat crotch expanses, so... I mean, it reminded me more of Wills Portacio's version of Xavier's... Wait, nope, we said we would never talk about that again. Yeah, I feel like there should be some kind of forfeit you have to perform here, but honestly, my brain is too full of, of uh, Cable blood and metal for, for any additional hardships. That's right, listeners. Today we are talking about cable, blood, and metal. And I should clarify that when I I say additional hardships, I don't mean that the comic itself is a hardship. The comic itself is actually really good. Um, It's just rife with hardships, uh, which its characters endure. Yeah, I feel like this part of the podcast has unexpectedly been defined by the two of us gradually falling in love with Fabian Nicieza's work. And his luminous eyes. No, anyway, um... Yeah, so I want to talk about that, actually, because the more I read of his stuff, the more I become convinced that Fabian Nicieza is basically secretly the unsung hero of the 90s. Because it's really, and and the early 90s in particular, and early 90s X-Books, because it's easy to see the art and kind of stop there and get down on that. And then here's Fabian Nicieza, like, quietly in the background, fully acknowledging and, and engaging with the absolute awesome of nonstop explosions but quietly writing soul back into the X-Books. He's doing a fantastically good job of working with artists who are all about drawing the yellings and the explosions, but at the same time, he's writing these books that have so much heart and feel so much like X-Books in terms of those qualities of found family that are so central to the line. Seriously, and I mean, we saw that most notably in the most recent X-Force arc we covered, where X-Force finally starts feeling like a successor to the New Mutants, but we see it also very surprisingly here. This is a book about Cable, the gruffest soldier that ever didn't give a shit about anyone around him, and it gives him heart. It gives him soul. What this book feels like to me, what this this, this series feels like, is a really solid summer popcorn action flick. One where you care a lot about the characters, some of them die, there's a lot of banter and witty repartee that really solidly establish their rapport and friendship, and and, you know, it's about explosions and yelling and stuff, but it's also about camaraderie and friendship and, you know, tough choices and important life lessons. Right? I mean, it kind of reminds me in a weird way of Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim was not a deep movie, but it was a heartfelt, wonderful movie. The monsters are not as good. There aren't actually monsters in this, really. I mean, the real monster is man. Or, uh, cyborg? Clone? It's very confusing. It's X-Men. Um, no, I think we all know that the real monsters are all designed by Guy Davis, who was not involved in the making of this issue, and thus, no proper monsters here. Alas, no issue can be perfect. But I feel like we should give some context, because a character like Nathan Summers is all about history, so... Previously, on Cable. That that really sounds like it should just start a television recap of the last many, many years. You kind of forget that Cable is a very strange name for a superhero when you say it enough, but yeah, good point. 
I mean, I also know an actual human named Cable spelled differently, so I sort of forget that it's not just a name, and also I haven't had cable television since I was 16 or 17, so... Well, let's try this again. Previously, on Nathan Christopher Charles Dayspring Ascani Sun Summers. Nathan Christopher Charles Summers, better known as Cable, is a mysterious cyborg time-traveling soldier, gruff, grizzled, and hard-boiled as they come from the far future. But he's also the son of Cyclops and Madeline Pryor. And Madeline Pryor herself is the clone of Jean Grey. Cable was sent into the future as a baby along with a priestess of the Ascani cult after Apocalypse infected young Nathan Christopher with a techno-organic virus that would have otherwise totally killed him. He is going to have a colorful life in that future, including being raised by Cyclops and Jean Grey's consciousnesses in future bodies, but none of that's happened in the comics yet, so we're going to focus on what we'd know going into this series as current readers which starts with Cable's arch-nemesis. That is a Spikes and Blades aficionado who goes by the name of Strife, S-T-R-Y-F-E, because it's the 90s, and who is the head of the terrorist Mutant Liberation Front, not to be confused with the multilateral force. Plot twist? Strife looks exactly like Cable under Strife's silly armor. Like, exactly, exactly. Same cybernetics, same scars, all that good stuff. The extent to which those characteristics will carry over between them is going to vary in the upcoming comics, but for now, assume they're identical. In the present day, or at least the 1992 present day, Cable met up with and led the New Mutants and transformed them into X-Force, a paramilitary strike force with silly costumes. However, after their most recent mission, X-Force and Cable were separated in an explosion, and Cable is now working on his own. Now, before he led the New Mutants, Cable worked with a mercenary organization called the Wild Pack. Or maybe the six-pack. It varies. Well, they were the Wild Pack, and then they became the six-pack, and we're going to find out how, actually, in the stories we're talking about today. But who else was on that team with him, Miles? Well, in the Wild Six-Pack, we have Domino, who would later be captured and impersonated by Copycat, who then herself would join X-Force, pretending to be Domino. Later on, Copycat would be revealed, and the actual Domino would be rescued, and sometime after that, join X-Force herself. Also on the team was G.W. Bridge, who would later join S.H.I.E.L.D., work his way up through the ranks, and hunt X-Force. Then we have the infamous Garrison Kane, who would later become the new Weapon X and get robot hands that he could shoot at people, and it's never not funny when he does. Garrison Kane is mostly notable for not being that familiar with Dalton Trumbo. We also have... Grizzly, who is big and red and furry and has very few other distinguishing characteristics, but that's okay because he knows what he does and he's solid and confident in his identity. And finally, we have Hammer, who is a techie and something mysteriously bad happened to him in between the six-pack days and the present. We don't know what, but we'll totally find out in this story. GW Bridge, Kane, and Grizzly all know a big, nasty secret, and that is that Strife looks exactly like Cable. And these guys, since unlike us, they don't have access to the comics, have all concluded that, therefore, Cable and Strife must be the same dude. They formed a group called Weapon Prime to hunt down their apparently duplicitous ex-ally, and were thoroughly, thoroughly trounced, leading up to the explosion that separated Cable from his students and the beginning of this series. So, Cable, Blood, and Metal. One thing this book does, and does very well, is that it goes back and forth chronologically between Cable's six-pack days in the past and his just-separated-from-the-new-mutants days, which is to say X-Force, in the present. 
It works really well to show how Cable has grown and changed over the years by putting him in parallel situations in those two timelines. But But that's not the greatest format for coherently explaining a complex timeline. So we're going to go through these and through the events of the issues in chronological order instead of the order in which they appear in the comics. We would recommend going back and reading these two issues. They're a lot of fun. They're on Marvel Unlimited. and They're pretty easy to track down if you want to see how this stuff appears in proper narrative order rather than chronological order. Okay, so the creative team on this book is fascinating to me. Now, we mentioned that Fabian Nicieza is the writer. He's been writing a lot of stuff, including X-Force, in this era. We have John Romita Jr. on pencils, and I believe Dan Green. Yeah, Dan Green on inks, and uh, Brad Vanacotta coloring. And John Romita Jr. is someone whose work on X-Men has ups and downs for me, but I feel like here he is in his element, which is to say large, technologically complicated men yelling and exploding. And this is fascinating because the last time we saw him on a very lengthy run of Uncanny X-Men in the 80s, his style was pretty damn different. It was still noticeable as being his. Like, you could tell when you're looking at a, a JRJR drawing. But by this time, when he comes back to the X-Universe, everything is much chunkier, much blockier. There's a lot more lines to it. It's almost like a different artist's work. Yeah, it's really interesting to watch his style evolve across the 80s and the 90s, because in addition to his run on X-Men, there's there's his his run with Annie Nascenti on Daredevil, which again is a run that I, I think is characterized by art that tends to be fairly fluid and, and very, very organic. And yeah, this one, this one is, is like, this one is just large hunks of person surrounded by large hunks of metal and large hunks of weaponry. So when I was a kid, I hated this era of Ramita's art. I could not stand it. And I don't know why, because now I kind of love it. I think it's just that I, I hated the 80s not being the 80s anymore, so everything evocative of that just made me mad, I guess? That's really fascinating, because it's an era that I think has very definitely found its way into your drawing style, even when you were a kid. I mean, drawing style is a relative term, but yeah, that's totally true. Like yeah, when I do but the way X-Men you shorthand doodles. things very, very much feels like it's, it's pulled substantially from this, from this sort of style. You are not wrong, although I think I was going for Jim Lee, but uh, maybe that's harder. Anyway, let's talk about the story. I I feel like young Miles was not equipped with quite enough uh, diagonal lines to really quite pull off the Jim Lee. Mm, Very true. Anyway, let's talk about the story. Let's start in the past. All right, and we're going to start by nitpicking the past. We open in what captions date as a decade ago, and I'm pretty sure this can't be right, because the series was published in 1992, and the scene, the opening adventure that we see the Wild Pack on, takes place during the Iranian hostage crisis, but it's implied before U.S. military intervention, which happened for the first time in April of 1980, which means this is taking place um, the, the modern day of this series is either 1989 or 1990. Oh, man, I thought we'd finally gotten past the image exodus, but now you're telling me we're back in it? Now, it's possible also, I can no-prize this, that the term decade is being used loosely to mean around 10 years. But given how precise the rest of the dating is, I'm disinclined to believe that. I mean, at least we finally got past all the randomly precise date and time stamps from early X-Force. I don't miss those. Neither do I, although I kind of loved them. I kind of love the weird precision of them because having having hacked through complicated shared histories to put together timelines, that kind of stuff is equal parts horribly frustrating and really useful. Legit. 
Anyway, the Wild Pack, who will later become the Six Pack, are using uh, the present, at the time present, Hostage Crisis as a cover for their actual mis- mission, which is a mission for the infamous Mr. Tolliver, a villain we've seen in recent X-Force. Right, and they are supposed to be performing some sassy corporate sabotage um, for Tolliver, specifically blowing up a building. Now, readers who'd been reading X-Force when Cable, Blood, and Metal came out would also know that Tolliver is a villain, but what they wouldn't know is something that's going to be revealed much later, but that you know, listeners, and that is that Tolliver is also Cable's adopted son, Tyler, who's not going to exist in continuity for a while yet, and whom you can just ignore and pretend doesn't exist at this point in time. I should also say, normally I would probably go into a long Iranian hostage crisis tangent, but literally its only relevance to this story is that it is taking place concurrent to a heist so don't worry about it just know that there was a big thing going on people were expecting u.s military intervention but what a heist it is now we already told you about the members of the wild pack cable domino gw bridge grizzly garrison kane who doesn't have robot arms yet and hammer and nisieza just nails their dynamic from the start like you said jay it's very much a badass macho action movie and yes domino despite being female is totally as macho as the rest of them and i love it but it's so wonderful. Nicieza is, among other many, many other things, well-known for what was apparently a spectacular run on G.I. Joe, and reading this, I absolutely believe that. Totally. And speaking of G.I. Joe and of the 90s, I have never seen as many pouches on superheroes or supervillains as a wild pack is wearing at the start of this issue. Like, seriously, Liefeld is known for pouches? There are more here. Like, way more. Way more. Well done, J.R.J.R. Yeah, there are there are so many pouches happening here. Um, what do you think the Wild Pack keeps in their pouches? We've talked about this with with every other character and team who's come up, and I feel like it's something worth examining here. Given the macho action movie dialogue, I'm thinking chewing tobacco and expired condoms. I think you're thinking a little too far into the '90s for this. Like we're we're still in the sincere, raw America days of of action movies. So I'm thinking. I'm thinking most of them have practical items related to what they do. Like, for example, uh, Hammer's got a, a ton of, like, little entirely fake this-is-how-you-hack-by-plugging-things-in and his own little foldable keyboard that he can plug into stuff. Hacking Hacker gear and electronic stuff. Um, Cable's just got little bits of explosives and guns. Domino, Domino just has random objects because she's Domino. Kane? has all of his pouches entirely full of pogs. 100% pogs. Oh shit, I was gonna say fruit roll-ups, but I love that we basically went to the same place with that, that Kane is just the big six-year-old of the team. And in fact, it's a running joke at this point that that Kane is Kane is really clueless. He is he is the kid of the group. He is not the, the brightest crayon in the uh, wild pack. And... The rest are kind of half looking out for him and, and half giving him hell over this, which he frankly deserves. Three years later, outside of Jutenberg, Austria, the Wild Pack just did another heist and are celebrating with one of Tolliver's assistants. In the three years since Iran, Tolliver has become their biggest ongoing client. However, none of them have met him in person yet, nominally because he just feels so conflicted after the things he, he hires them to pull. The assistant also mentions to the Wild Pack at this point that they're gonna have to change their name because representatives of the Simkarian government have been making inquiries about trademarking the name Wild Pack, which is a great detail and it's a great continuity nod. Um, it's mostly relevant to Silver Stable's origin story, but it's also kind of a callback to an acknowledgement of the pre-existing Wild Pack in the Marvel Universe. 
I'm pretty sure this was initially just an editorial oversight, like Nicieza or Liefelder, whoever, didn't realize that there was a wild pack already, but this is a nice, clean, entertaining fix, and I very much appreciate it. You know what I love about this? What's that? It means that officially not one, but two of Cable's teams have lost their names because of trademark disputes. Oh, that's right, because X-Force later lost their name to the reality TV show kids. Right, the ones who later became ecstatics. I love this plan. I also love how they get their new name, because when they hear about this, Kane is rooting around for a six-pack of beer, and there are six of them, and there you go. Not long after this, on a run in Afghanistan, shit goes down hard. Domino recognizes a secret maybe Soviet base, and they sneak in, after which Cable recognizes some suspicious tech and goes hard off mission, convincing the rest of the Wild Pack, now the Six Pack, to follow him. They shoot and explode their way through a whole bunch of grunts, like a lot of grunts. Ramita draws so many bad guys when there are crowds of bad guys, and they get to the big bad in the control room, and holy shit... It is everybody's favorite cannot walk through doors without turning his head villain, Strife. The six-pack confronts Strife and his large crowd of goons. The other thing I love about this is that at least when Hammer's around, in fact, usually someone in the group estimates the number of goons they're fighting. Yep, I actually started counting myself, and um, the numbers aren't really exactly the same, but uh, still it made me feel closer to Hammer, and he's a good dude, so I feel great about that. Well, they're always estimates anyway. They're very specific numbers, but it's always like around 17 or around 25. Here it turns out that Strife and his around 25 goons are in fact also in the employ of Tolliver. And Strife feels no collegial camaraderie. In fact, he decide he he tells Nathan that it's too bad he went poking around because futile in its own way, Nathan, that you'll die before you were even born with nothing but questions on your lips and the taste of blood in your mouth. To which Cable rejoins, The only way I'll taste blood today, Strife, is by kissing you goodbye! Well, that escalated both quickly and uncomfortably. I love, I love, love, love the action movie banter, and Cable is just the fucking best at it. He's also the best at action movie action because he takes his gigantic bandolier of explodo capsules and chucks the whole damn thing at Strife. Strife teleports away by means of his comrade Zero, and Cable body slides the six-pack away. His comrades in the six-pack are justifiably confused and really pissed off. They broke a contract, and for mercenaries like them, that's not just a career-ending move, that's a death sentence. And in fact, a year later in Singapore, they are bantering their way through a big old shootout on some docks. And I... I think we should just go through what each of them says, because Nicieza really gets that action movie camaraderie hardcore. So we start with GW Bridge. Trust me, he said. What a joke. For eight months, we've been hunted like dogs. To which Grizzly responds, Like foxes. I've never seen dogs being hunted. I never understood that saying. We're being hunted by dogs, like foxes. Right? It's good to be precise about these kinds of things. I also really love Grizzly for this because imprecise idioms are frustrating as hell, and I have moments like this in the middle of important, well, not really action scenes because I'm not a enormous mutant mercenary. I'm, I'm an editor and writer, but um, the, 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 my, my life's equivalent to this, which is things like, you know, being in line at the bank or or other such exciting adventures and heists. And, and Cable... Uh, Summers, to his core, responds, 
Good point. Hammer adding. Grizzly's right, GW. And GW rejoining. You're all idiots. Domino finishes it up. And you're the head idiot, Bridge. Congratulations. Now why don't you all just shut up and fight? And they do fight, and Domino sneakily swims under the dock to blow up all the bad guys, and it's great, but the six-pack is just trusting Cable less and less as he not only got them into horrible trouble, but appears to be making very bad decisions to go after this weird metal dude. This is something we're going to see with Cable again and again, and have already seen with him, that ultimately he is not going to prioritize team cohesion or the larger mission over his own personal campaigns and crusades. This is something we saw with X-Force, and really, in a lot of ways, this is the series about him finally and for the first time in his very long, if time-displaced life, rethinking that perspective. But not quite yet, because that same year in Uruguay, Sixpack breaks into Strife's base and steals a bunch of information from the computer there, but Strife catches them in the act. He teleports in directly behind Kane and starts to strangle him, saying, Hey, I'll give you back your boy and his whole pog collection. If you just give me that disc you stole, I want the information back, and then you get your buddy. Hammer, who's been kind of Kane's de facto big brother figure throughout this, starts to hand over the disc without a second thought, but Cable will have none of this. Hammer, you are clueless as to what's really going on here. Hammer, Hammer! Damn you for doing this to me. Damn me for doing this to you. And Cable shoots Hammer to keep him from handling, handing over the disc, which Strife's gets anyway because Strife's telekinetic. Wah, wah. And Cable teleports away on his own to chase Strife, leaving the building to blow up because the six-pack had set a bomb to detonate after they got the information. And Hammer, who just got shot in the freaking back, and Kane, who was busy being strangled, are caught hard in the blast and get super fucked up by it. Damn, Cable. Yeah, this is very much old Cable. This is pre-change-of-heart Cable. He is utilitarian. If you were playing Mass Effect, he would go straight renegade. It's not that he's a bad person, it's just that he sees his larger goals and doesn't give a shit who he has to sacrifice to accomplish those goals, because the goals are so important. You know, looking at that and looking at this series and the stuff I said earlier about Nicieza and his impact on the X-Books in the early 90s, in a lot of ways, I think the transitions and the changes Cable goes through in this series and sort of the tonal transition of this series is a pretty good microcosm for the changes that Nicieza enacted in general. Because initially we've got stone-cold, rock-hard, badass cable, biff, hard slab, etc., who is this cliché of an action hero. He's, he's, you know, Weird Al pretending to be Rambo, but with cybernetic bits. Like, he's, he's so hard into his genre that he's a parody of himself. And in the present, which is where the rest of the story takes place, or at least the present of the series, which again is sometime between 1989 and 1990, or possibly 1992, maybe the Iranian hostage crisis happened on a different schedule in the Marvel Universe, the cable we've got now is still a rock-hard action hero, but he's one who's grown up a lot, and he's one who has learned and is starting to learn about not only his own fallibility, but about what actually matters and what he's really fighting for. One of the things I really appreciate about that is that you can very easily draw the line between 
being around the new mutants and learning from them, learning specifically not just from like Shatterstar and Warpath, but from the kids who were on the new mutants, what caring about other people is like. I love that my favorite book taught Cable to be less of an asshole. Sam Guthrie's secondary mutation is teaching you the power of friendship. He makes me want to be a better person. I want to be someone Sam Guthrie would respect. Hard same. Um, but here, again, we're talking about that tr- transition and Yuseza and the new Cable. And the new Cable is badass, and he's got even bigger guns and probably even more muscles. I, I don't know what these muscles do. They do not have analogs in normal human bodies or correlative functions. Can he just, like, spin his nipples? What, what is happening here? So they talk about something called power creep. Um, I first became familiar with the term in Magic the Gathering. It's where when you have iterative repetitions of something, like new cards in a set, for instance, uh, the power tends to get bigger. You see the same thing in Dungeons & Dragons, especially 3rd and 4th edition. I think that's what the future's like. And you certainly see the same thing in superhero comics over the years. And I'm, I'm not talking even about superhero comics. I'm talking about time progressing. I think as time went on, the normal amount of muscles wasn't really enough. I mean, look at Hugh Jackman in the X-Men movies. He just gets buffer and buffer as it goes. What do those muscles do? They let him act harder. Those are acting muscles. Similarly, what do these giant guns do? I mean, a gun just shoots a thing, right? But the guns in Cable's future have so many additional parts because just to be able to shoot a projectile, it's not so easy in the future. It's not so easy in the age of apocalypse. This dark tomorrow we're simply projecting a little piece of metal from one place to another requires a goddamn toaster on your shotgun. Are you sure they don't just shoot toast? I mean, obviously. What if you encounter a villain whose only weakness is toast? More common than you'd think. Well, who says they're even for villains? But so, so that's why Cable's got all of these extra muscles. Exactly. He brought them back from the future, and that created a time paradox where that power creep came back as well, that muscle creep, if you will, which is why everybody else, including Cyclops, got extra buff in the 90s, just through proximity through this time-displaced, extra-muscly Nathan Summers. Fact. But the important thing here is that not only does he still have all these muscles and all of these guns and all of the explosions, and not only is this comic still badass and violent and cool, but because of the Nicieza transition— It's also full of valuable lessons about friendship. And that's what I love. I think of it as occupying something that I sort of think of as as the McNinja point on the graph. I'm very excited to hear where this goes. Which is that it's awesome and it's silly and it's over the top in all of the ways we expect a comic book about big ridiculous men and their big ridiculous guns to be over the top. But it's also got a ton of heart And the thing that ultimately propels the narrative is character relationships. And it's such important and solid proof that those things aren't mutually exclusive. We think of there being, you know, explosion comics and feelings comics. And I think we should have friendship and blow it up, too. I like this plan. Although the blowing up friendship thing, the more I think about that, the more that's a little bit concerning. But overall, I like this plan. No, it's good. You can't destroy it. It just spreads it to to a wider radius because it's a concept. Oh, okay, it's kind of like that He-Man action figure where his power was to explode, but then he was okay, and the action figure would actually pop apart into two halves, and you could just put them back together. It's like your Black Lotus card, speaking of power creep. 
you can't put the Black Lotus card together after you tear it up. Oh, no, that was Chaos Orb that you had to tear up. That was the one. Oh, sorry. Chaos Orb. Chaos Orb. My mistake. And then there was Chaos Confetti, the joke version of it after. Right. Oh, Magic the Gathering. I'm never getting back into it because it's too damn expensive, but I kind of miss it. I I need to continue my very low-key ongoing quest to collect all of the copies of the Frazzled Editor card from Unhinged that I can. I had like a dozen at one point, but I put my business card, glued my business cards to the back of them and handed out a bunch. (laughs) So good. So good. Anyway, in the present day, sorry, present day, present time. (laughs) Thank you, Strife of the Wired. Serial Experiments Lane is a wonderful anime. Everyone should watch it. But in the present day at the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. Part of the MLF, in this case, Dragonus, Sumo, Skids, and Wildside, with zero in the background for transport, break into steel a medieval Scottish sword. It's actually really cool to see Skids with the Mutant Liberation Front, mainly because it's cool to see Skids in general. She and Rusty were such important characters in X-Factor, and then they just got boring when they joined the New Mutants. Well, okay, let's be fair, Rusty was always a little bit boring. And since then, they've barely existed at all. So seeing them, even if it's just in a group of people who Cable is kicking the ass of, is very nice. They don't seem to have developed personalities within the MLF, though. No, but at least they're showing up again, and at least... Skids is very stylish again. Now, Sumo has the sword in hand when Cable shows up and promptly announces his presence by shooting Sumo through the forehead and killing him. Whoops. Well, it's very deliberate on Cable's part. Uh, yeah, well, true. Poor Sumo. We didn't know anything about him, and now he's dead. Everyone else skedaddles, and Cable retrieves the sword and takes it to a buddy of his at the Museum of Antiquities in Cairo, um, which is great because he gives us another Cable in a suit and glasses scene, which I never really get tired of. He cleans up okay. He shops at big and big and big and big and big and tall. And Ramita, who's been drawing the kingpin for years, knows how to draw a large man looking dapper as fuck, so um, he's, his suit fits much, much, much better than it did in the Liefeld or, or Portacio days. Now... Cable's buddy identifies the sword, um, and it's not worth a lot, it's not particularly rare, but it has some special styling on the hilt that's appeared on only a handful of other artifacts, and those artifacts are scattered through a weirdly large spread of times and locales, and two of them have recently been stolen. There are two left, one is an Egyptian hieroglyph, and the other is a, a Japanese mask, and... The hieroglyph is is at the Cairo Museum, so Cable lies in wait and intercepts another MLF group trying to steal the hieroglyph. This time, it's Rusty Collins, which is to say Fire Fist, Dragonus, Reaper, and Samurai. Hey, wait, that's Kamikaze. His name isn't Samurai. And what I love about this, it's supposed to be Kamikaze. Clearly, this is just the wrong name. But later, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe will say, no, 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 Samurai and Kamikaze are two different dudes, and they're twin brothers who wear the same costume, and that's why they have separate names. Okay. Glorious. And Cable takes this opportunity for some dramatic narration, triggered by the sight of Rusty Collins. Rusty, a former member of the New Mutants, one of the ones that got away from me. A delusional lie. They all got away from me. All I can do now is make sure none of them slip through my fingers again. And the only way to do that is by clenching my hand into a fist! All I can think of here is the part in some or other recentish, like within the last five years comic, where someone yells, fist him at Iron Fist, and Iron Fist is like, man, I hate it when people say that. <laughs> That's glorious. You remember that old He-Man character? This is the second time I brought up He-Man. Maybe the third? Uh, Fisto? His name was Fisto. He had a big fist. 
It was metal. I do not, but speaking of Masters of the Universe, have you seen the new she designs? Those just went up today, two weeks ago as you're hearing this, but they're so good. Oh no, I haven't. I gotta look those up. That's awesome. she is so cool. Oh dude, they are super, super awesome. They are incredibly well updated. They are incredibly modern and... Shira has the two, as far, as far as I'm concerned, most important characteristics of any action hero, which are fancy as hell hair and a costume that a kid could easily throw together a reasonable analog of fitting. You know, it, a kid in any of a large range of ages and genders could reasonably throw together a reasonable analog of from stuff they had lying around, which is really important because as far as I'm concerned, heroes for kids should be as make-believe friendly as possible. Um, but it's also just a gorgeous, gorgeous design. And my favorite thing about it, you know, I mentioned liking that, but my favorite aspect of the design itself is, wait for it, Shira has something I'm not sure has ever appeared on a female animated character before. She has a convex breastplate. Nice, nice. She has armor that is not going to crack her sternum if she trips. That is refreshing. I mean, individually articulated breasts are a long-standing tradition, but just because something's a tradition doesn't mean it's the way to go. I mean, a lot of really terrible things are traditional. That's true. The past is awful, by and large. I, I, I will quote or paraphrase, because I don't remember if it's the exact quote Tim mentioned here, and say that just because an idea is tenacious doesn't mean that it's worthy. I love that so, so much. And this design is good proof of it. And I know a lot of y'all who listen to this like cartoons. I know a lot of you like character design and like character redesign. And this is such a good bit of updating. And I'm like, I didn't grow up watching she or He-Man or any of that stuff. I have no nostalgic investment in it. If I were coming in fresh, if I were a kid in, in 2018... Just seeing this stuff, I would be excited for this show just based on those pictures. It it looks so cool. They look so cool. And if that aesthetic is at all indicative of the general sensibilities of the project, it's going to be awesome. Nice. And we said we were in the 90s. Here we are in the 80s and in 2018 simultaneously. I love it. Well, we're talking about a cable miniseries. It's kind of inevitable. Hmm, good point. Speaking of things that are inevitable, Cable basically shoots everybody, although this time he doesn't kill anyone, although he does shatter Reaper's new metal hand that he got to replace the hand he got cut off by, by Shatterstar. Oh, he doesn't shatter it. He just knocks it off with a well-placed bullet and retrieves it. Oh, Reaper, you can't have nice things, or, uh, your hand, apparently. Handiwork, Cable? Hey, hey, hey! So, three days later we turn to some other characters entirely because GW Bridge and Kane have been hanging out and talking. Kane has pointed out to Bridge, yo, Cable, Strife, same dude, what the hell, he used to be our bud, apparently he's more of an asshole than we thought, and so they decide it is time to hunt that fucker down. Now, Kane was damaged in his confrontation with X-Force, and Weapon X or Department K or whatever auspices he falls under as the new Weapon X has taken the opportunity to soup him up a little bit. He now has tons and tons of little lasers in his fingertips, which I assume takes after Cable, who also has fingertip lasers, but, yeah. I think Ramita just likes drawing people with little rectangular holes in their fingertips. But it's not just his fingertips. Like, Kane's got lasers that pop out on little stalks from all over his arms and shoulders and stuff. There's so much technology. Does he have laser nipples like French Craven the Hunter? Did I mention this? I don't think I mentioned this um, when I was talking about the, the French 
and European Marvel comics. Um, they have they have new covers, but there's one where Ka- where Craven clearly originally was was holding two guns that were firing energy beams, but the guns were taken out afterwards. So he's just firing beams of energy out of his nipples. Craven trains very hard to be the greatest hunter of all time, and if anyone could have aggressively fatal lactation, it's probably him. It was great though. It was like seeing Erica Henderson's brain come to life and just take over the past for a moment. Glorious. Well, anyway, this Kane in the present uh, is now a super badass cyborg even more than before, even though he can never play guitar again. Well, I guess not like acoustic guitar anyway. I'm pretty sure that guitars were built specifically to withstand laser fingers during this era. Oh man, Kane would totally be the guitar player of the band. That's not a compliment. I'm not saying it was, although I do love the guitar. Anyway, before he takes off to hunt down Cable, Kane's first stop is to visit an old friend, Hammer, now quadriplegic and living in the care of a woman who I'm pretty sure is his mother. Because Kane can't remember anything useful as established in the past, uh, he has to go talk to Hammer, who has a really good memory and knows exactly where all of the Wild Pack's old safe houses are. Um, and I, I love the just running continual joke that Kane is kind of useless. There is not a sad flashback scene in which Kane remembers the days in which he and Hammer were able to play with Pogs together. But this flashback, which in the comic comes before we learn about Cable shooting Hammer in the back, is a nice little setup for that. That's one of the things I love about the back-and-forth nature of this miniseries. Yeah, so Cable, for his part, is in fact holed up in one of those former safe ha- um, Wild Pack safe houses. This one is in Switzerland, and Cable is trying to figure out why Strife might want the artifacts when he is interrupted in his solitude by a very irate Garrison Kane who is there for some wrestling. There's all sorts of punching and lasers and 90s tough guy growling, but eventually Cable beats Kane, he gets the best of him, and demands to know what the hell Kane is doing. Why is Kane attacking Cable? And Kane says, you know, I know what you've been up to, and uses his robot eye to project what he witnessed, which is Strife taking off his helmet to reveal Cable's face. And Cable is just as shocked witnessing this as Kane was when he saw it happen. Now I know how Kane must have felt all these years. Like someone who's been lied to, and is as afraid of finding out the truth as he is of having lived a life of lies. And only one thing feels real to me right now. One thing I can reach out and grab hold of. The lifeline I've always had. My action movie one-liners. My anger. That too. And yeah, that, that's the thing. Cable didn't know about the Strife connection. And so him being, him being so shocked, the reader knowing more than Cable, for me that actually really humanizes Cable because he's been almost omniscient before and now the reader's got one up on him. Yeah, Cable is the guy who always has to at least give the impression of knowing more than anyone else in the room. And here, he and Kane are suddenly on really equal footing. And Kane is willing to believe Cable's Cable's shock is palpable enough that Kane is willing to accept it, and the two of them team up. So the next, they Cable has taken care of the hieroglyph. He's rescued that, but there's still one artifact left, and that is in Japan. And Cable and Kane, now allied, head out to pick it up. It is in none other than the Yashida stronghold in Japan. Right, Mariko Yoshida, Wolverine's former fiance. It's her place. Unfortunately, she died recently. Back in Wolverine number 57, she got poisoned. Logan had to mercy kill her. It was super goddamn tragic. So now the whole place is kind of in chaos. 
The current boss of the Yoshida clan is Marako's cousin, the Silver Samurai. He is largely nominally a villain, although he's the kind of villain who is generally considered honorable, honorable and regularly teams up with heroes. However, there have been issues with other potential attacks, and the Enclave is on high alert. And suddenly, I'm going to pull a hammer here, around 24 ninjas appear. <laughs> More like nonjas. Crime what passes for a ninja these days. Right? Oh, I, I will never get sick of Speed Racer references. So, these ninjas are fodder, but they're very sneaky fodder. Like, one thing I notice in this is every time there's a giant crowd of henchmen, like, the heroes are doing something and they turn around and the henchmen are just there. So at least the ninjas are being good ninjas by being sneaky, somehow, very. But they put all of their points into stealth and none of them into melee, so Cable and Kane are able to at least survive for long enough and take out enough ninja and leave enough of a kind of mountain of ninja, which is a little bit hilarious, that when Silver Samurai comes out, there's there's time for them to explain to him what's up. And he says, okay, well, I assumed you were people from another crime family coming to break in. This is actually fairly reasonable. So yeah, I will let you switch out this mask for a fake one that has a transmitter in it. Good plan. Party on. Uh, largely metal dude solidarity. Indeed. Now, Meanwhile, in Mexico, which is kind of weird because Cable is just in Japan, right? Cable's meeting a white-suited and well-mustached Mr. Richter. Wait a minute, I know that name. Right, and that'll become relevant in a sec. But this Mr. Richter tells Cable that the mask that he was examining is, in fact, a forgery. And Cable uses telekinesis to slam Mr. Richter against the wall. Mr. Richter responds by wondering if Cable's going to kill him like he did his brother. So this is, this is Julio Richter's uncle. The mask has an EM tracer, though, and Cable mentions that he is, he is impressed with Nathan. Wait a minute. This isn't Cable at all. This is Strife pretending to be Cable. Which is kind of great. I mean, if you have a nemesis and you look exactly like him and he doesn't know you look exactly like him, you can be all sorts of sneaky. I'd like to think that in addition to the really big villain stuff, he also does a lot of things to just make Cable's life really sitcom inconvenient, like schedule him for multiple dates at the same time. Right. This also explains Julio Richter's belief that Cable killed his father, because clearly Strife has been passing as Cable with the Richter family for some time now. It is interesting that they look identical, though, because we'll learn later that Strife was a clone of Cable without the techno-organic virus, so he really shouldn't have all the scars or robotness or glowing eye or whatever. So, I assume that Strife just basically fakes up the scar in the arm. Um, I'm not going to say it's not hard to do, but I doubt people are looking very closely. Cable tends to be kind of a shut-in, and they're superficially similar enough characteristics that I imagine... It's, it's pretty easy for people to confuse them without looking in a great de deal of detail. Well, anyway, despite the fact that Kane is still super resentful of Cable, even if Cable isn't Strife, because, again, to be fair, Kane lost his arms and Hammer lost his uh, non-quadriplegicness because of Cable. Okay, to be fair, there are so many reasons to resent Cable. There really are. For me, it was because my favorite book became not my favorite book, even if it later did get better. But they head to Mexico as they run through the jungle to get to an ancient temple. Uh, so Kane's nervous and Cable's guilty after last time. We, of course, already know through this podcast what happened last time, but still. Also, they're both in shorts as they run through the jungle, and it's adorable. I 
really like the way the comic builds up the parallels between the two missions, the one in the past and the one in the present, really the series of missions. And that's something that you're missing hearing us talk about it in chronological order, but again, is very, very much there in the issues if you go back and read them. There are a lot of sort of tiny echoes, a lot of overlaps in dialogue or in imagery. Now what there is, though, is a fight with Mutant Liberation Front folks. Cable is able to put the kibosh on the attack fairly quick, quickly, though. A telekinetic adjustment on the EMPG hand cannon creates a widescreen bioelectric dispersal effect. Large men putting screwdrivers into things, turning them, and adjusting them. So two things. I love mixing like superhero powers with technology the way Cable does here. And also that is some high-grade techno babble, and I appreciate it. Now... Cable and Kane find the fake mask and are surprised by, this time, at least 17 guards plus the rest of the MLF. And Strife appears and grabs Kane. Hey, just like last time. Strife also takes off his helmet, revealing what we all now know. He looks identical to Cable. And Cable asks why Strife is doing all of this now. To which Strife responds, Because time's up, Nathan Dayspring. I am now prepared to set my life aright. It is time to make those who stabbed my heart, who bled my soul, pay for their sins. Strife's modus operandi here, and really throughout his life in general, like for all of the comics he's in, is such a remarkable mix of of dramatic supervillain and deeply passive-aggressive. Like, he's genuinely profoundly peeved that everyone doesn't already know why he's angry at them. And so he just refuses to explain while seeking revenge, and it just never stops being mildly hilarious. He, he, he's, just, he's just always in, you know what you did, mode, but here, he's got a slightly more specific goal. I want your computer, the one you call Professor. I want to own it as he once did, the sinner of time. The master of tomorrow, the end of all that is. Um, and I'm going to add my own editorial foot- footnote here and say, Apocalypse dash J-E. Right? And Cable, seeing that Kane is about to get maybe even more fucked up than he did last time, ejects a CD thingy from his wrist, which presumably contains Professor's data. It's a mini CD. It totally is. That was the thing back then. I love it. It absolutely is. Um, but he tells Strife that he can't have the CD until he drops Kane. So Strife drops Kane, and Cable burns up the disc. It's not going to be like last time. Strife is furious, and he fucking shreds Cable with telekinesis. It is so goddamn brutal looking in this two-page spread, as there's just blue energy going around both of them, and Cable's just, like, flying apart. His armor is breaking, and his techno-organic stuff is just falling to pieces. Yeah, Strife we see throughout this series, uses telekinesis very casually and very brutally. And that's very much in contrast to Cable, who almost never uses his. You'll find out later that that's because Cable's telekinesis is largely tied up keeping the techno-organic virus he has at bay, while Strife is free to use his as he pleases. So, you know, clone luck. Of interest at the time, as I understand it, if I'm getting my chronology right, the ex-creators, Nicieza included, had intended Strife to be the real Nathan Summers and Cable to be the faulty clone. I actually really like the way it ends up turning out. It makes a lot more sense reading this right now, knowing that that's the way it's going to be. You know what I'm wondering? What's that? I'm wondering if Strife is going to show up in the current X23 to X23 book. 
you know, that would actually be fascinating. Those are chronologies and uh, sort of concepts that don't tend to overlap, the Summers nonsense and the Logan nonsense, but yeah, that would work really well in Laura's book. Clone Club, man. Oh, man. So, Kane rocket hand grabs Strife's shoulder spikes and shazakagrafts the whole thing, shattering Strife's armor super brutally. I love this panel. And saving Cable and also blowing up his own arms yet again. Okay, to be fair, we know he can always get new ones, and in fact, he does immediately because Cable is faced with a choice. The choice, then. Take a step forward to save Kane's life, or take a step back and kill Strife once and for all. And this time? This time, it's no choice at all. He grabs Kane and they teleport, they time slide to the far future city of Applecrust, um, originally the edges of Manhattan, where Cable gets Kane new arms, like new person arms, new, new flesh arms. Or at least robot arms covered in flesh, which is kind of what Cable Steel is. In Bishop's near future, Manhattan is a floating graveyard, but here in Cable's far future, it's a clean and shining techno-utopia. And yet... And yet there is a statue of motherfucking Apocalypse in the town square. And this is such glorious foreshadowing for what we're later going to learn about Cable's future and about so many different storylines that come out of that revelation. But what this future does have along with an Apocalypse statue is really good technology um, that, that does really good medical stuff. And Cable tells Kane that they will absolutely find the means to, to fix up Hammer here. And Cable has... No regrets about the choice he made, which is what he he had told the group before, that he he would do what he did again. And here he says the same, that, you know, he made the right choice saving Kane and he'd do it again. And this is how Cable has grown and evolved over time. And, and you know, he cares now. It's nice. Here is to character growth through lots of explosions. Yeah, Jay, you're right. This miniseries, it's it's so much better than I remembered. Like, not having that adolescent resentment of New Mutants not being what I wanted it to be anymore has really opened my eyes to just how good some of this 90s action-y stuff can be. Yeah, and again, Cable's development as a character here is a great microcosm for the 90s X-Line before and after Nicieza was fully writing the books. Absolutely. So that is that. Good stuff all around. And here's some more good stuff because you've got questions. Dimitri Jai asks on Twitter, can you name any black American female X-Men to read up on? Most that I know are African, and in talking with my brother, we couldn't name a, sim- a single American black woman X-Men. Well, I know of at least a few on the male-identifying side. Um, so we've got a short list for you. So we have Cecilia Reyes, who, as far as I know, never got a code name. We have Bling, one of my favorite young mutants. Storm, kinda. I mean, she was born in, uh, or raised at least, in America. Whether you want to count that or not is kind of your call. Well, she grew up in a combination of the United States and, and Africa, but she, she was born in New York, so she is, she is technically American. Then we have Angel 2, that's Angel Salvatore. We have Frenzy, we have Darwin, we have Shard, I mean, she's a hologram, but same diff, and we have Venus de Milo from the Ecstatics. Of interest, a lot of those characters are not visibly black. A lot of them have non-standard human-colored skin, for instance, like Bling is purple and stuff like that. And that's a little strange and unfortunate. I do appreciate that not all of the, you know, blue or purple or whatever mutants are assumed to be default white, but that also means we lose out on some visible representation we might otherwise have had. 
Yeah, I think it's really telling in science fiction and fantasy media in general that in a lot of visual representations, it's considered, you know, easier and more socially acceptable to have green or purple or blue skinned characters than black ones. Even so, um, there's uh, more than we thought, so at least that's something. Progress, but we want more! More progress! Always. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, is Rachel Gray the same person as Rachel Summers? Yes, she is. Specifically, after Jean died and Scott hooked up with Emma Frost, Rachel was really pissed off and started going by her mother's name instead. At the same time, she got a kind of weird-looking costume that I was never really a big fan of. Yeah, it was riffing on the original Marvel Girl costume, which is which doesn't doesn't age particularly well. But as far as I know, Rachel is still going by Rachel Gray. She's also going by Prestige, and then she was going by Hound in the very, very recent past, and things are getting very dark. I I, I sort of keep on expecting her to take her mother's approach and finally just be like, I'm I'm done with code names. Because really she has not had a good one since she was Phoenix. You know, you are not wrong. You are not wrong. So that is what we have for you today. But what you have often had for us is financial support through the form of Patreon. And some of those levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from a variety of fictional characters and or concepts. For instance, the angry Claremontian narrator. You thought you could trade camaraderie for principle, Emily Dirk. That your mission was the only thing that really mattered. And that's why, in the end, Greg Yoder morally bankrupt and spiteful though he may be, will always triumph, and you'll fail. And speaking of failures, the mic at this point goes to strife. Time's up, Ryan Atkins. I am now prepared to set my life aright. You bled my heart and stabbed my soul. No, no not stabbed my eyes, that's, that's a cable thing. But the vicious circle on which our lives run comes around again, and you shall pay for your crimes against me. And then, and then, I shall be free to pursue my vendetta against the sinner of time, the master of tomorrow, the end of all that is, Tom Davies! All of time, past and future alike, shall be full of strife! I mean, me, not, not just the concept, but I guess that, too! And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. Come see us at FlameCon, August 18th and 19th in New York. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com, and hopefully soon on even more podcatchers. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And join us on Discord in the Mutant Revolution. I'll throw a link in the visual companion to this episode. Next week, we continue the lead-up to Executioner's Song. As X-Factor takes on a remarkably modern dilemma. (laughs) 